Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome to the third of the Thinker's Guides to the 21st Century. My name is uh, Professor Glenda Sluger. I run the Laureate Research Program in International History. And a while ago I thought, as times change so quickly and so many concepts seem to be flying around, many which we've heard before, some new, that it wouldn't be a bad idea to bring my colleagues together occasionally to discuss some of the key words, key ideas that are uh, in the news these days. So we've already spoken about feminism and the new international order. And tonight we're going to talk about authoritarianism. In two weeks we'll be back to talk about globalisation. So authoritarianism. I want to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the university has been built, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And of course, they remind us that it's not only historians who pay attention to the past. But historians these days, I think, I feel that myself, that I can't really get to sleep very easily anymore because there's so much of the present that seems to resonate with the past that I know, the stories and narratives of political history through the 20th century. I'm a European historian, so I, I, I feel the angst of the present rather sharply. The historical illusions of contemporary governments in the United States and in Europe are driving all manner of comparisons, it seems, these days, with the 1930s in particular, and the rise of Nazism, fascism, and authoritarianism. Now, I've got up, I think um, there's a map behind me uh, from The Economist, which um, surveys the state of democracy in the world. You can go online and check it out for yourself and click on different parts of the world. Um, and in this panel, we're going to be able to broach some of the changing political scenarios uh, across that map, but not all, of course. And we can leave some of the discussion to, to um, question time, but also to think about the examples we talk about today uh, more broadly in the conversations we have after this uh, panel. Now, to begin with authoritarianism, there's a problem of definition, of course, and I'm sure the speakers are going to bring up how they think about authoritarianism, what it is. But I started reading around and looking at some of the recent uh, material on it, and I found that there is a quite a divergence in the kinds of definition that are being applied. So in a Politico article that was published during the United States election last year, uh, one author, Matthew McWilliams, wrote pr provocatively that authoritarianism was in play in the election already, and that was already January 2016, and he was actually observing the Trump phenomenon. And I found interesting the claims that McWilliams made about authoritarianism at the time. He said, it's not a new, untested concept in the American electorate. Since the rise of Nazi Germany, it has been one of the most widely studied ideas in social science. While its causes are still debated, the political behaviour of authoritarians is not. Authoritarians obey. They rally to and follow strong leaders. 
and they respond aggressively to outsiders, especially when they feel threatened, from pledging to make America great again by building a wall on the border, to promising to close mosques and ban Muslims from visiting the United States, Trump is playing directly to authoritarian inclinations. Now, what, what McWilliams did is he surveyed people on the telephone, I think, and he um, asked them a range of questions, and on the basis of their answers, determined that 49% um, more of the Republicans scored in the top quarter of what he called an authoritarian scale, more than twice as many Democratic voters. However, when I looked at his um, method, the question he asked, the questions were based on child rearing on whether it was more important for the voter to have a child who was respectful or obedient, obedient or self-reliant, well-behaved or considerate, and well-mannered or curious. And respondents who picked respectful, obedient, well-behaved and well-mannered, he argued, were strongly authoritarian. So I found that sort of problematic. But based on these questions, on his understanding, Trump was the only candidate whose support among authoritarians was statistically significant. Okay, well not all commentators on authoritarianism are using that kind of psychological definition and there's a, a, a strong interest in the kinds of structural shifts that are taking place at the moment at national and global levels as much as the question of individual agency or charismatic sociopaths or even authoritarian inclined family structures. And uh, if you look at some of the historical commentary you'll find that there's a general argument that perhaps in many ways authoritarianism is the norm and democracy is the exception. Uh, if you look at the 20th century uh, in the um, interwar period, particularly the 1930s, we have Ataturk, Franco, Salazar, Mussolini, Shanghai Shek, Hitler, Stalin. So general anti-liberal tendencies um, dominating the political scene. And one of the arguments goes that even in liberal democracies in this period, there was a tendency to admire the strongman, to admire Mussolini, for example, and you could find this in um, Australian political rhetoric, for example, amongst Liberal Democrats. World War II saw the end of authoritarian rule on this kind of timeline in West Germany, in Italy, in Austria, in Japan, but not in the Soviet Union or in Iran or Chile. And in the 1960s, as, our, as my friend to the left here uh, well knows, the um, illiberal juntas took uh, government in Greece, for example, but also in Nigeria, in South Korea, and Indonesia, and many places in Latin America. The 1970s saw 30 authoritarian regimes fall. But now, of course, commentators are identifying a global wave of authoritarianism grounded in anti-liberal populism, whether we think of Turkey, uh, Hungary, or Poland, Thailand, or indeed the United States. So I'm not going to go any further into the kinds of um, characteristics of these uh, authoritarian uh, inclinations, but I will be asking our commentators tonight, our panelists, to discuss how they understand this global wave and what their particular expertise allows them to, um, uh, to see in this present. How do we navigate this contemporary reality? How do we understand what's going on in specific parts of the world, but also perhaps as an historical trend? And these are some of the questions that I hope we'll be able to take up tonight. So let me introduce our panelists. Uh, I'll start at the other end of the table, so reverse order. Uh, Dirk Moses is Professor of Modern History at the University of Sydney, where he currently directs the degree in International and Global Studies. 
He's best known as an historian of Germany, particularly for his work on post-war German debates about the recent past. And his book on that um, topic, German Intellectuals and the Nazi Past, won um, major historical prizes. Dirk has also pursued a parallel interest in genocide, memory and post-colonial history and written numerous books and edited numerous books on these topics. Next to him is Lucia Sorbra, Senior Lecturer and Chair of the Arabic Studies Department. Her expertise is Egyptian history and particularly nationalism, internationalism and feminism. And her main current project is a compilation and analysis of women's narratives and political agency in the 2011 Egyptian Revolution, which she is analysing within the broader context of Egyptian contemporary history. And it's in that context, and in fact, Lucia has carved out for herself a very prominent role as a public speaker on the Egyptian political scene. And you may have seen her around on the TV or in various forums speaking. Resides Karalis is the Sir Nicholas Laurentis Professor of Modern Greek and the Chair of the Modern Greek Department. I think of him as a Renaissance man who works on the Byzantine era and on modern Greece. He has written, uh, this is in a sort of a footnote, but I always say this, because he's written one of the great commentaries on, I think, um, the Greek-Australian, or more simply Australian past. If you have a chance, buy his book, Recollections of Mr. Manoli Lascaris, which is about Patrick White's partner. He's also a prominent voice in Greek politics in Australia and in Greece, and never shies from saying what he thinks and often gets into trouble for it. So welcome to our speakers tonight. And I'm going to actually invite um, Vress to take the stand. You're going to take a stand, and the rest of us might be sitting here. But welcome. Thank you. How long do I have? Um, you have 10 minutes. 10 minutes. I have to say 10 minutes, because I, I thought we, instead of preparing a speech today for uh, my take on authoritarianism, I wanted to give you the intellectual origins of this modern contemporary authoritarianism, because it is a very strange movement, as you see, that appeared recently, although it has its origins in the past, and this is what I would like to study with you today. No one could ever believe, for example, in my generation, the 70s and 80s, that the right-wing reactionary political presence was to be taken ever again seriously as a considerable social force. 30 years later, however, it seems that a new form of authoritarian right-wing politics has emerged and it is here to stay unless we studied carefully what I believe is its language, its action and its history. We cannot dismiss that as an episode or a symptom. It is a foundational movement that we, fundamental movement that we see today in contemporary societies, and it's, it's here to stay. And as you will see, it has already its disastrous effects on the fabric of modern society. As you remember, before, after the fall of, co of communism, Fukuyama pre predicted the end of history with the uh, rise, essentially, domination of liberal democracies. That was, not, as you understand, one of the dreams of the illusions and the delusions of the place. We cannot understand the rise of this, uh, of this authoritarian, new authoritarianism without as you see, the very, very precarious position of the social uh, economics in modern societies. As you see, 
since the 70s to the 90s, you know, essentially the low middle class, the middle class, the low middle class have actually they pay, they rise in their income is much much smaller than what is the upper class, the one percent, as you see, of the whole uh, of of modern uh, uh, capital, in modern capitalist economies. We cannot understand the pressure, the social pressure that leads uh, creates this populism without the shrinking, as we see, as we understand, of the um, of the middle class, the disappearance essentially of the working class, and finally, as you see, the emergence of new authoritarianism after the collapse of, com of communism, uh, of socialism 1991. The same can be seen for the Americans, as you see in the Americans, and the same to a certain degree today in Europe, which seems like a very interesting uh, place to study, uh, to start our exploration. In post-war Europe and America, despite the anti-communism of the McCarthy era, most conservative politicians adopted a liberal agenda, albeit slow and under many reservations. The liberalism of De Gaulle, for, for example, or Adenauer, however, allowed the rise of a confident middle class, which he, we see now being shrink, shrinking with distinct social culture and demands a political uh, representation, and of course, as you remember, the idea that imagination can reshape politics worldwide. And this became the backbone of Western liberalism and the instigator of the rise of modern open societies. However, as you see, in the 90s, we have the rise of a new, you know, if I may, I'm not going to uh, give you causal connections here of identity politics. What is identity politics? It's something, as you understand, that today becomes a serious problem in the way that we see what happens in, uh, uh, with the rise of uh, authoritarian parties. For example, even Richard Dawkins, as you see here, you know, one of the most uh, liberal, we could say, or, you know, delusional political, uh, sort of uh, public intellectuals that we have today, is against identity politics, and this becomes a serious issue, as you understand what we see. The other thing you have to remember is that identity politics replaces this old uh, tradition of class politics that we have, and the fight, as you understand, for the, uh, for the change of the political system. That's why you have here, in previous one, I think racism, sexism was to be, I can't see anymore. What does it say? The soul after we take we take down capitalism. So that was the original plan, but it failed. And as you see, in the, in the place of, in lieu of this, we have this new rise, as you understand, of identity politics with uh, Steve Bannon in Break Brat, stupid Democrats, identity politics, the loser, defend our heritage, white pride, and the in Australia, as you see. I love this one that was made the announcement recently. Don't white people have a right to their cultural identity? It's a very interesting question that Tony Abbott repeats constantly and probably some of the political parties today here in Australia. But as you understand, modern forms of authoritarianism are very important because what we call the alternative right as a political it's not simply a political ideology, but a social movement. And being conflated in many occasions with what we used to call totalitarianism in the past and even fascism. It contains elements of that, but it's not that old tradition of totalitarianism and fascism. It's, it pretends to be anti-globalization, anti-elitist, anti-establishment, and all this expressed with a populism that essentially appeals to many people around us. The anti-movement is also anti-Islam, anti-immigration, anti-feminism, and of course, as you know, anti-political correctness. It is a, a policy, a politics, as you see, of negativity. 
negativity as we have Tony Abbott here in Australia. And it tries supposedly to pretend that it pretends that it protects white culture, Judeo-Christian tradition, and traditional European uh, liberalism. At the same time, you see there, you know, these people, as we saw in America, in the States recently, and in some demonstrations here in Australia, we have a nativist, xenophobic, white supremacist trying to defend the Judeo-Christian <laughs> values. Something is really, really funny in many occasions. Finally, I want to say for the, this movement. It's not homogeneous. This is what we have to know in order to address the grievances and uh, the problems that this, the question has raised. It's not always Christian or anti-Semitic. For example, amongst them there is a very strong neo-pagan movement, who, and they hate Christianity. And also, it's not simply there, there are many atheists amongst them. All religion is bad, according to them, especially, as you see, religions. And it's very interesting to see that atheists are very close to totalitarian thinkers, like the one the Russian I would like to point out today. And finally, we conflate, they confuse pluralism to relativism, which is very, very, a very important mistake, as you understand the way that they talk about modern multicultural societies. The main strategy, as you see, is the internet. This is how they disseminate their ideas. This, the second thing which I heard recently, they call it the troll culture. Most of them are trollers. You know, when they find something, they go and follow you everywhere you go, on every website and every page of your, of your Facebook, whatever you mentioned, and they troll you to the, to the end of time. You will become really, really uh, sort of a kind of uh, angry with them. And finally, the media becomes the main issue, as you see here, some of the media superstars, Amongst them, my old friends, as you hear, the old right, as you see, Milo Yiannopoulos, who created all these incredible problems, as you understand recently, who is the rebellious fagot, as he calls himself, and that indicates uh, the, uh, the uh, diversity of things that we have uh, in this movement, that under uh, fighting against political correctness, they come up with these outrageous, sometimes, ideas about themselves. Finally, the intellectual origins go back to this, I would try, I, don't want to go back to Edward Burke and the 19th, 18th and 19th century conservatives, but I got to this, this very strange man, Genon, for some of you who study uh, uh, political science of the past, who tried to unite uh, the East and the West, and he became a Muslim at the end, which is a very interesting sort of a kind of uh, contradiction into the intellectual ancestry of this movement. Genon has remained one of the leading lists in the right of work. Then, the famous Giulio Evola. We cannot understand the movement that we have today without this incredible individual, Julius Evola, who, who was more fascist than all fascists. He actually critiqued fascism from the from an ultra-fascist point of view. And it's a very interesting sort of a kind of, if I may say, form of intellectual uh, endeavor that we have in that period, and which influencing people to this day. And it's a very interesting aspect if you want today to debate or confront the alternative right, alt-right uh, arguments, you have to go back to this intellectual fathers of the movement, which I believe as a historian must study by all means. Let us leave modern men to their truths and let us only be concerned about one thing, to keep standing in a world of ruins. The idea that we live in a world of ruins is the central idea of Julius Evola's sort of a political theory. The other thing, as you understand, based on them, we have in the, eight, in the 60s the rise of what we call the Nouvelle Droite in France. 
You cannot understand the movement as it stands today without these people there. The Nouvelle Droite is a very strange movement. Unfortunately, as you see, the Nouvelle Droite created a, a sort of a kind of research center which called, uh, took the name of my country, Grèce, La Grèce, as you see there. Well, uh, a group de Recherche et des Etudes pour la Civilisation Européenne, which became, a, under uh, Alain de Benoit, one of the main places where this new idea, the conservative revolutionary movement actually began in Europe. It's very interesting for some of you who are interested to read the, the work of Benoit, and it's very interesting to see that Benoit and the alternative right have very strange, very strange ancestry as well, because most of the members were influenced by these two Marxists, Gramsci and Trotsky. Most of them are the Gramscians of the right, as they call them. And Trotsky, of course, with the idea of perennial revolution. If some of you who are leftists and you study the story of the American left, you know that all conservatives in the Bush era were all Trotskyists in the, in the 40s and 50s. And this idea, as you understand this, that we have this essentially uh, sort of a kind of very hybrid, uh, I might say, intellectual history, background history, is a very interesting thing to be studied today. Then Benoit, as you know, is a very interesting uh, thinker, and he's influencing today a lot of thinkers. That you see, even himself has written a book on Carl Schmitt, one of the main sort of a kind of thinkers of this tradition, the jurist of the Third Reich. I've got three minutes, and I'm finishing. Don't worry. Then, as you see, this incredible book of the Indo-Europeans trying essentially to create what he calls ethno-pluralism. He is not, he doesn't believe in homogeneous uh, um, European culture, but he believes that we, there is space for many, many parallel societies within the Western uh, European tradition. Very interesting point, very complex thinker. He's still around. You can find him on, on YouTube giving some very confusing lectures. And, of course, this book, strongly I recommend this for you who you want to understand what happens today, View from the Right. It's a very interesting book, a collection of articles or manifestos. And this leads us to this man here, uh, Donald Trump, who is an unintended consequence, I believe, of the inability to in, uh, uh, confront the alt-right. We will no longer surrender America to the false song of globalism. This is one of the main mantras that uh, uh, Trump gave us this, uh, in, in, after he became a president. And of course, you can understand him without the famous Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon, as you understand, is the man, sorry, can we don't have the time to think, but he was influenced by the Italian fascism, essentially by Julius Evola, he gave an amazing paper, very interesting and indicative of his uh, uh, political ideology at the Vatican via video link about who was Evola and how it influenced the strategy of the, uh, when he was strategizing, was planning the strategy for Donald Trump. And it's a very interesting aspect to watch that as well. Himself, as you see, he believes that he's a Judeo-Christian and he's defending the Judeo-Christian tradition, as you see. And what are the values of the Judeo-Christian tradition? We can discuss about that afterwards, how the alternative right sees the whole thing. And here is, of course, as you remember, the famous spoof on him in this uh, comic uh, skit on, um, on, uh, um, on Donald Trump. The other thing you have to remember, and I will finish with him, we cannot understand the other side of, of, the, of the political spectrum, Russia without this dude here, Alexander Dugin. 
Alexander Dugin is the most dangerous of all, by the way, if you were there. And most, uh, I don't know if some people say that he overestimated, we overestimate his influence on Putin, but it seems that he's an extremely eloquent, for some of you who visit his website, and uh, extremely well, if I may say, well-structured intellectually. His thought is so intellectually, if I may say, appealing and totally insane. You will be seduced by the surrealist landscapes of his thinking. Of his thinking, he actually starts with a very solid analysis of the Eurasian project, as he calls, and ends up with an eschatological war between Satan and Jesus Christ for the salvation of the human of 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 uh, the earth. So that indicates a lot about him. Very interesting, especially this book. I strongly recommend you to read. And they're all fascinated with one German thinker after Karl Schmidt, Heidegger. Heidegger is the man, the philosopher of origins, according to them. You cannot understand where we're going without the study of origin. It seems to me that all neo-conservatives, neo or all authoritarian thinking of today is about origins, maintaining the purity and the integrity of origins. Now, what that, that means is another story. Finally, I would like to stay for him, for him is against liberalism, against, um, uh, forget it, don't read it, uh, individualism and all the other things. Here is more. An important aspect, he says, is an absolute denial of Western civilization. In the opinion of the Eurasians, the West with its theology of liberalism is absolute evil. And he finishes, the West has destroyed its own tradition, its own empires, and its own religion, and is now dealing with the rest of the world. Now, this is a very interesting aspect, as you see, for the man who is behind the ideological the speeches of uh, uh, um, Vladimir Putin. Finally, and I finish with this, what is the meaning of authoritarianism? That's the last slide. I mean, it reinstates, supposedly, the order that has been destabilized by the, in the 60s and 70s. It revitalizes the state. Usually, as you know, conservatives, especially left, right-wing people, are about the, against the big state, therefore a small state. Now they revitalize the state as being the dominant factor of stability and balance in society. Second, privilege security over freedom. Finally, takes away de facto human rights. And actually for the young amongst us, you realize your human rights at the moment you're losing them. Finally, reinvents what I call ethnocratic nationalism or nativism. And finally, as you see recently, with all the, the people, the leaders that we have in Hungary, in Poland, in the United States, in the Soviet republics, the former Soviet republics, in China, in, uh, uh, even in India, if we may discuss about that, reimagines charismatic leadership. So for me, this is a very, the question are still open. The questions are still open. I don't think we can solve them tonight. My presentation simply I would like to stress that the new right has adopted and adapted for its own purposes to reinvent many permanent questions of the previous liberal tradition of conservatism within the capitalist society and giving them a new direction. Some people will say a new disguise, more satanic than before. Thank you. Normally I do a follow-up, but actually we're running late. So well, I have to say, save up your questions, and you can also listen to that at half speed on podcast. <laughs> okay. Next up, Lucia. You can stay there or take the lectern. Would you I'll stay here. Happy there? All right. 
I think I will start first. Thanks, Glenda, for uh, organizing this panel and for including me into it. I, my research goes more on the ground, uh, and uh, it's less. Uh, uh, I mean, ideas are on the background, but uh, I, in, especially in the past few years, I've been working mainly with people uh, in uh, the NGOs and. Uh, civil society organizations uh, and of course the street and I would like to start from the last point that uh, uh, Vras uh, underlined uh, which was uh, emphasizing the crisis the you know the global crisis of human rights that we are experiencing in these years and I think that Egypt uh, is uh, sadly paradigmatic of this crisis uh, and uh, is one of the countries where this crisis is more evident uh, even if uh, ignored by both European uh, American politicians and also Australians. Uh, today is not, it's a sad and uh, a good day for um, our Egyptian friends. It's sad because uh, Mohammed Abu Zaid, known as Shao Kahn, turns 30 years old and this is the fourth year that he spends in jail without trial. Uh, Shao Kahn is a photojournalist uh, and he was arrested uh, uh, after he reported the, one of the biggest, the biggest massacre in modern history of Egypt, uh, the massacre of Rabah uh, al-Adawiyah uh, in, uh, the, in, in uh, August uh, 2013 after the coup. Uh, it, there was a sit-in of supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, as perhaps you know, and uh, he was there as a journalist to report about this massacre and uh, he's accused of uh, being part of the organization uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, has been in jail for four years without a trial. He's not the only one. Egypt is considered today uh, one of the most dangerous, dangerous countries in the world for journalists. Uh, but it's also a good day for uh, today for the Egyptian civil society because Mohammed Zari, uh, the head of the Cairo Institute of Human Rights, one of the most prominent human rights organizations in Egypt, uh, whose uh, uh, siege is not in Cairo anymore, but uh, it moved to Tunisia, has been awarded uh, the Martin Ennals Award, one of the most important international awards for human rights. Uh, Mohammed Zari is a, is a human rights lawyer and he joins a long line of human rights lawyers uh, who in the past few years uh, have been awarded uh, important international uh, uh, awards. Uh, Mahe Nur al-Masri, uh, a human rights lawyer and uh, political activist from Alexandria, was awarded the Ludovic Triare Human Rights Prize in 2014. And uh, uh, she spent several years in jail for her political activism. Uh, Mosna Hassan, uh, who is uh, the leader of the most prominent uh, feminist organization today in Egypt, uh, Nazra for Feminist Studies, uh, was awarded in 2016 of the Right Livelihood Award, uh, which is uh, an alternative, uh, alternative Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, the, the lawyer Asda Soleiman, uh, has been awarded a few days ago the Allard Prize for International Integrity. Uh, all of them have pending cases, you know, with the courts, with the judiciary, and uh, all of them are facing uh, daily harassment uh, um, for their, their assets or the assets of their organizations are frozen, and uh, uh, there is basically 
a, a, a war against these, these human rights activists, uh, uh, especially when uh, their activism, you know, their activism always challenges the, the politics of the current regime. Uh, so it's uh, where we were a few years ago and uh, where we are today. Uh, in a book about uh, authoritarianism in, uh, in, in Egypt and in Syria, a political scientist, Joshua Schenker, uh, opens uh, by quoting uh, an Italian writer, and he says, if you want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. And with this, it, this is Tomasi di Lampedusa, obviously. And uh, he mm, emphasizes in this book how the uh, Arab elites uh, have never initiated, uh, he tries to put you know, what is happening in Egypt, in, in Egypt and in Syria in 2011 uh, until uh, 2013 in a, in a historical perspective. And uh, he emphasizes how the Arab elites uh, have never initiated reform processes, but rather uh, they engaged uh, in processes of adaptation. And I quote, autocratic adaptation helps regime elites maintain their dominant position and hierarchical authority over society. It is in regime interest to change so that it can stay in power. They reform to keep the political system going and help rulers uh, avoiding more radical changes in future. In fact, uh, if we look at what happened uh, in Tunisia and in Egypt since 2011, uh, the end of 2010 and 2011, uh, we, have, we can see that there has been a regime change. You know, the, the head of the states were deposed and uh, new, uh, new regimes were put in place. But the main demands of the revolutions, uh, which were dignity, freedoms, and uh, uh, social justice were not met, neither in Egypt uh, and nor in Tunisia, which uh, ironically by the international system is considered uh, the successful case of the revolution. In a way it is, but uh, if we look from the politics on the ground from below, criticities are absolutely evident also in, uh, in that context. But what I would like to underline is that these uh, Arab authoritarian regimes, uh, which are reorganizing and uh, which are uh, transforming from uh, what they were, you know, in the 90s, they were, you know, secular, uh, neoliberal uh, uh, regimes, uh, today and civil. Uh, today, they they are more and more uh, neoliberal and uh, neo-authoritarian military states. Uh. Uh, they, they don't act in isolations. You know, they, they act uh, with uh, the support uh, uh, of the Western powers, uh, or at least uh, the non-intervention of uh, uh, European uh, American and American uh, states. So th this is very critical. And uh, another thing which I think is very critical is the silencing of the civil society by International, international scholarships as well. A scholarship which focuses too much on uh, the organization of the state and on studying politics uh, from a top-down uh, uh, approach uh, silences uh, and uh, does not shed light on the democratic forces which are trying to organize in from below. Uh, it is ongoing in, uh, in, the case that in the country that I'm studying more than anyone, which is Egypt, uh, a war on memories. Uh, 
the apparatus of the state are trying not only to silence the dissident voices uh, uh, through practices of uh, harassment, uh, of uh, uh, incarceration, or forcing people to exile. There is a new wave of Arab exile, which uh, includes especially uh, intellectuals and political activists. But uh, there is also a war on memories. They are trying to reappropriate the narratives of the 2011 revolution and to build their own narratives. And this is why I think that it's important, you know, the work of oral history that we've been doing in, in the past few years, but also of collections of witnessing and uh, uh, testimonies of the political activists. And this is how scholarship becomes a kind of politics of witnessing. Um, I conclude, and then I leave it to uh, Dirk, uh, um, saying with the words of an Egyptian political activist uh, who is also in jail. He's waiting for, for, um, for an appeal before the Court of Cassation the 19th of October. Uh, Al Abdel Fattah is one of the main uh, bloggers uh, and the democratic activists in Egypt. Uh, and he's serving a five-year sentence for a tweet. Uh, on the charge of insulting the judiciary. In this tweet, he was criticizing, um, um, he was criticizing um, a, a court which had, uh, with regard to the foreign finding case, uh, a case against the NGOs in uh, 2011. So um, Al Abdel Fattah, who is uh, serving uh, five years of jail, uh, and we know what is going to happen. We don't know what is going to happen later because uh, uh, there are the, the authorities have always a uh, number of cases uh, under their, in their desks uh, against political activists. Uh, uh, talks to the international uh, uh, political activists, uh, and he says, "We reach out to you not in search of powerful allies." but because we confront the same global problems and share universal values, and with a firm belief in the power of solidarity. Thank you. Actually, what I've experienced in Egypt and in North Africa in the past few years was meeting Democrats without democracies. Uh, so when there is not this general assumption which is uh, made uh, uh, by many scholars but also by gover international governments that you know Egyptian people are not ready for democracy and uh, or more generally Arab people are not ready for democracy and when they go to elections uh, they tend to vote for Islamist forces you know these uh, and they quote the case of uh, uh, Algeria first and then uh, Gaza and then, uh, of course, Tunisia with the victory of Al-Nahda in the 2011 elections, and, uh, and of course, the, the so-called victory of the Muslim Brotherhoods in the 2011 um, elections, uh, where this is, uh, in, in my, from my experience and from what I have seen and uh, documented uh, over the years, uh, it's actually a misconception, uh, which is due, again, to this approach of looking at these societies only from above, from the, from the documents which are recorded in the archives of the states, and which, of course,
selected documents. Uh, in, uh, in reality, you know, the, um, if I look at the intellectual discourse and the intellectual sphere in, uh, in Egypt, uh, uh, I find, you know, the, the intellectuals that I find quoted more than anyone are Anna Arendt and, uh, and Gramsci. And uh, as a you know, as a student, as an undergraduate student, you know, I was around you know between Lebanon, Lebanon and Egypt since the late 90s, uh, and I started reading Gramsci uh, with my my Egyptian friends. So it's uh, it's very much part of the cultural and um, and the critical discussion. So I think that uh, if we discuss authoritarianism in the context uh, of um, Egypt and more broadly the Arab world, we need to situate it in the context of the, the birth of the post-colonial states and, uh, and how it evolved, uh, especially in the 90s, with, no, from the late 70s uh, through the 90s, uh, with the opening to neoliberal economies. And this is how you know, the, the national, the regional, and uh, the global politics intersects and produce these uh, kind of states, uh, of state apparatus. Uh, another element that we don't need to forget is that uh, both the Ben Ali and the Mubarak regime uh, were considered and labeled by uh, Western media as moderate regimes. Uh, and uh, the word moderate referred to the idea they, they were a, a kind of, uh, uh, they were uh, fighting a fight against Islamic terrorism. So, and this narrative is still used by the current regimes. The, the Egyptian regime legitimized itself internationally uh, with the claim of uh, um, stopping migrations. So it presents itself a little bit like Turkey as the gatekeeper of migrations and uh, as, uh, the, um, as, as, you know, as one of the allied against transnational uh, terrorism. So we, we really need to be careful in how we um, frame the discussion uh, because you know, ideas travel and uh, while they travel and they are translated, uh, they can also, you know, the context can deeply affect the way they are understood. Thank you very much. Well, I think that all those themes politics of memory, Arendt, Gramsci, and the power of ideas lead us almost naturally, I think, and inevitably to Dirk. So I'll hand over to him now. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. I'll stay here as well. Then yeah. I can look at my notes more easily. Now, we've heard from Vras a very high-octane intellectual history or history of ideas approach to particularly the history of the far right, which is further to the right of authoritarianism broadly defined. And then we got a much more on-the-street, granular perspective particularly uh, in Egypt from Lucia. I guess I'll pitch mine in the middle there somewhere um, with uh, a global historical approach being the only historian on the panel along with Glenda. Now oh, from- In the history department. In the history department, yes. okay. Now, <laughs> we heard from Varasa, we got the implication that these thinkers, particularly these Russian and other thinkers, are anti-Western, which no doubt they are. Uh, with the implication being that authoritarianism is a political tradition which is anti-Western and is, uh, emanates from outside the West. I want to flip that around and suggest that authoritarianism, historically considered, 
systematically considered is intrinsic to what made the West hundreds, over hundreds of years in the history of imperialism and enslavement of people, and then in securing itself in the Cold War. Let me be more specific. The West has always relied on authoritarianism in dominating other societies in order to extract resources cheaply. And the way you extract resources cheaply is by enslaving people and in clearing out people who resist. That's what the history of imperialism is, broadly defined, very simplistically put. Okay. Uh, and those were authoritarian experiences for the people who were enslaved or the indigenous people who were pushed off or murdered. Okay. But it allowed, as a precondition, the flourishing of liberal institutions, democratic institutions in the metropolitan core in Europe. Okay. This is a, from the 16th century onwards. Okay. Now, when we move to the Cold War, consider the classic essay by Jean Kirkpatrick, who was an advisor to Ronald Reagan, who wrote an article in 1979 called Dictatorships and Double Standards, which justified the foreign policy of the Reagan administration in the 80s. She made a distinction between authoritarian regimes, which the West could support, and totalitarian regimes, like the Soviet Union. The West needed to support authoritarian regimes, anti-communist authoritarian regimes, because they were less stable than totalitarian ones, and their values were not as distant from American values, because they're often Catholic, anti-communist <coughs> ones in Latin America, um, not as distant as obviously the Soviet Union was, which was the evil empire. So she made a pitch that authoritarianism was, or supporting authoritarian regimes, was actually the foreign policy option of the West. And this is not that long ago, it's the 1980s. Uh, it's not surprising that Spain, Portugal, Greece, which were authoritarian dictatorships until the 1970s, were in the Western camp. We heard uh, Glenda briefly mention them. They only joined the European Union in the 1980s, also not that long ago. Okay. Authoritarianism, whether within Europe or outside Europe, was intrinsic to what the West was. Okay. It's forgotten because since 1990, you have the dramatic collapse of the Soviet Union, but also the collapse of these dictatorships around that time in Latin America, and then truth and justice commissions, transitional justice is uh, the lingo, but also the end of apartheid in South Africa. And you had then a democratic opening in the Philippines in the 80s, also in Burma a little later. So this was the efflorescence of democracy and the end of authoritarianism, and that's our modern memory of it, which we've forgotten what, became, what was there before. It's also the efflorescence of globalization, uh, which was a new phase in global capitalism, and which Varas mentioned at the beginning with that graph of growing inequality and then the experience of precarity and insecurity that people have uh, endured now as a backdrop to the mobilization of authoritarian politics. Now let me move to another sphere, India. Earlier this year, the editor of the very important journal 
the EPW, the Economics and Politics Weekly, uh, which is a major organ for public debate in uh, India and also a source of critique of uh, government policy and so forth, um, was forced to resign because a particular mining company threatened to sue the newspaper and the trust that runs it because of an article and a series of articles it had written criticizing that mining company's behavior in India and its relationship to the Modi government. Any guess what that mining company's called? Okay, well, look it up. Just Google EPW, that mining company you'll see. Now, what does this tell us about authoritarianism and this version of capitalism, which is resource extraction? This is a connection. You need authoritarianism. In this case, this proximity between capital and the state cracking down on dissent, on freedom of expression, on the media, in order to smash resistance to their resource extraction. Now, the reason they need to smash that resistance is because the resource extraction is so often illegal. In this case in India, this mining takes place in uh, uh, what are called tribal areas, uh, which are heavily wooded uh, and are owned or inhabited by, if you like, indigenous peoples, uh, Devasis and so forth. And uh, the tenure, legal you know, ownership of this land is sometimes unclear and is taken advantage of by corrupt local politicians in the pay of capital who then hand over this land to corporations who hire militias to uh, chase off the people living there and the mining then takes place. I mean, this is, of course, how settler colonialism worked in this country. Uh, literally, it was pastoralism in the 19th century, but then mining has become ever more important. So you can kind of get an internal settler colonial scenario uh, in a state that's not itself a colonial state. It's a post-colonial state. Now, Authoritarian states can still be allies of the West. Saudi Arabia is a far more liberal society than Iran, but Iran is the big problem for our leaders in the West. The West tolerates, turns a blind eye, even denies what's going on in Palestine. It says you can't even use the word occupation. You know, it's sort of a, a fake news kind of scenario. Now, let's move more uh, to another domain yet again. Glenda mentioned that there's lots of analogizing going on. You know, we're back into the 1930s with the rise of anti-democratic politics on the far right in particular. Uh, it's certainly a very common position from my colleagues who teach German history, but suddenly their knowledge is relevant. Ah, I can write an opinion piece in the newspaper because what I know about history is really what's important. Certainly colleagues in Italian history uh, have also done the, the same. It's not Hitler, we need, it's Mussolini. You know, and then still others say, no, no, it's uh, Franco or something, or the Spanish historians. Now, I think while there are some useful things that can come out of it, it's a very different historical conjuncture. The far right in the 1930s was mobilizing against a highly organized, militant left, leftist formation, whether uh, a Bolshevik one, 
or a social democratic one, which is called socialist, okay? I mean, the German left, for example, was split between communists and social democrats, okay, who were fighting with each other, actually. But they commanded vast proportions, or vast numbers of voters. You can't say that about the left anywhere in the world, uh, in the West today, okay? The left uh, trade unions be decimated, okay? Um, partly because social democratic parties have been the instruments of globalization policies in the 1990s. It was Hawke and Keating who globalized the Australian economy. Okay? It wasn't the economy, it was Tony Blair after Thatcher's start who globalized the British economy, which has led to the backlash we have now. So there's a bit of an identity crisis for at least the moderate left, if you want to use that language. Okay? It's very different from the 1930s. Now these developments in uh, global capitalism the rise of inequality, and the rise of precarious employment circumstances. For example, Poland. On paper, it's a really successful experiment in the transition from socialism to capitalism. Much more successful than Hungary's economy. If you look more closely, you'll see it has the highest percentage of workers on precarious contracts in Europe. So people's experience may be that now they can buy uh, cheap imported stuff from China, but they don't have the stability that they had under the communist regime. Okay. So not that they're nostalgic, especially in Poland, for uh, the communist regime, but the experience is one in which uh, economics, economics insecurity leaves a vacuum, an identity vacuum. Uh, people aren't making uh, uh, politics in terms of class, as Vras said, but if you want to use Max Weber's distinction between class and status groups as members of a status group, uh, particularly in terms of identity politics. So it's filled by the vacuum of nationalism. The vacuum is filled by nationalism as opposed to cosmopolitanism, which is the, the rhetoric used by the globalizing elites that Trump despised and that he thought that Hillary Clinton and Obama manifested. Okay, which they did in many ways. In many ways, the, the analysis is wrong. Now, the rhetoric of people who feel like this, and they may not have read the philosophers that uh, Vras mentioned, but the, the intuitions are the same, is that the system is broken. The system is not delivering the economic promises uh, that it made. We know that since 2008 in the global financial crisis, already nearly 10 years ago. And that people like Clinton and Obama didn't recognize that and just continued uh, along in their merry way. The system as broken is incarnated in the figure of the migrant or the refugee because they're an outsider, culturally an outsider, as this rhetoric puts it. And the elites in this broken system have imported them here. So these people say, that's what Pauline Hanson would say, and people like Pauline Hanson in other societies. So we need to mend the system. This is what far-right groups are saying. And for them, the experience of crisis is so intense that they would prefer a strong man, an authoritarian leader, and hang diplomatic parliamentary procedural niceties. Do you think Trump supporters really care if he's a bit fast and loose with the rules on issuing regulations and orders to ban migrants from certain countries? 
No, they don't care. What matters is the outcome because there's a perception of crisis. If you don't share that perception, then their politics are incredulous to you or incredible to you. Really, you can't understand them. It's an assertion in this authoritarian imaginary of the rights of a majority to reproduce itself uh, in, the in the face of the rights of minorities. That's the rhetoric you get in this attack on political correctness. If we want to use that language, political correctness is to protect the sensitivities, feelings, rights, dignity of people who aren't in the majority. Right? And the majority is tired of that. So say the authoritarians. That's why they don't want to apologize for any sins of the national past. Okay. Uh, so this is very complicated for Hungarians and Poles because of the Nazi past. Both of, especially Poland, is definitely a victim of national socialist occupation. But uh, you know, Jews were, whether Polish or non-Polish, were uh, killed in more numbers. Okay, and many Poles helped the Nazis. Okay. Now that's very difficult to acknowledge if you want to be the number one victim of the Second World War. And that victim politics feeds into the nationalism I mentioned. Now, this nationalism can manifest itself in different ways. Obviously, a Christian nationalism, you know, where representing Christian Europe works in Hungary, it works in Poland. It doesn't work in secular Netherlands or the Scandinavia. Uh, there, it's a secular nationalism. But the object is the same. It's the Muslim outsider. For the Christian nationalists, chauvinists, uh, it's part of a civilizational war that's been going on for hundreds of years. For the secular secularists in uh, Northern Europe, it's about protecting our secular values against people who are really religious. So it's coded in a slightly different way. Move outside Europe, you will get uh, a Muslim fundamentalism on the rise in Indonesia and in Turkey as a vehicle for nationalism, as an expression of nationalism. Okay. So obviously it's not going to be Christianity there. And an attack on minorities. New laws in Indonesia may, are making blasphemy much more intense. They're also making it harder for non-Muslim minor, Christian minorities, for, for example, to build churches and so forth. So it's the it's the, a version of the majority asserting itself against the minority. Now, why they feel they need to do that has got to do with this global context of insecurity. Now, these are vast generalizations. We'll need to drill down uh, into each society to see how they play out in different ways. Now, I just want to end with the, the, my little subheadings. He says, let's not panic. And in Poland, for example, where the peace and justice ruling party is trying to set up an authoritarian state and has done so successfully in many ways by attacking, by uh, arrogating to itself the right to appoint judges in the lower courts. But it had its attempt to uh, do so at the highest court vetoed by the president. So there's a checks and balance going on there. Uh, also, in terms of popular protest, a mass women's movement pressured the government into not moving ahead with criminalizing abortion. And they already have the most tough abortion laws in 
or restrictive abortion laws in Poland, but they wanted to go further, and they stopped that with popular protest. So in many ways, these attempts to institute authoritarianism have mobilized resistance. You saw that in the States with people blocking the airports a few months ago when the travel ban came in. I mean, really, it was quite impressive popular mobilization. Uh, Peter Harcher, in a very interesting article in the Herald a few days ago, wrote about the way uh, authoritarian rhetoric and attempts of Trump have been stymied by the courts, by the media, by the, even the corporate world, which believes in free trade and isn't going to start a trade war with China. Uh, his own party in Congress was not going to abolish Obamacare at the moment in any event because it realized that many of its constituents actually benefit from it. So he can tweet as much as he likes, but the system, in its different ways, has prevented an authoritarian state from manifesting itself. Now, I just want to end, though, having said lots not panic, with a warning about, is there anything in this concept of creeping authoritarianism? Spectacular attempts to violate the rule of law, to imprison, to imprison journalists. I mean, if we had the Australian government behaving like the Egyptian government here, there would be protests in the streets. Okay? It wouldn't work. But what about creeping versions? For example, are uh, police going to be walking around with machine guns now in Australia? I read in the, some police in the newspaper today. Uh, we've had the attack on the Victorian Supreme Court by two uh, members of the Liberal Party a few months ago where they were called in contempt and they ultimately backed down. But what it meant was that on the right wing of the Liberal Party and then obviously to the parties to the right, the rhetoric of the courts are stymieing the interests of the people is one that resonates. Uh, that's the kind of populism on the right that uh, leads to authoritarianism. You know, I represent the people and the institutions, the system, it's corrupt. We have, of course, and I'll end with this, the uh, debate we're having now about locking up children uh, for security reasons for an incredible amount of time. Now, these are just tiny little measures, but if they uh, accumulate over time, is that a creeping authoritarianism? Uh, in a minute, we'll open up to questions from the floor. I've just got a few follow-up, and, and do feel free to answer um, anyone to answer them. I guess um, you know, we're getting, already getting a sense that there are certain paradoxes built into authoritarian politics. Namely, um, you might appeal to the people and the popular, but actually it's all about the um, power of the state or the, of the individual um, person in power. Uh, what about neoliberalism? Because it's come up a lot in the three talks. And you know, Dirk, you, uh, you painted a picture that I think you can have fairly well kind of find through the um, 19th and 20th century of the kind of the alliance between this you know, kind of capitalism, imperial capitalism as extraction of resources and um, these authoritarian practices. But actually, but within the kind of authoritarian politics we talk about today, there's, you know, they seem to be defined by economic nationalism, right? By the rejection of the kind of globalization that one tends to associate with neoliberalism. So can you be authoritarian and neoliberal at the same time? Well, I think the right is split on this, well, conservatives are split on this in the way that uh, the left is as well. Uh, so there's, a, there's an incoherence in the political system uh, which leads to a splintering of the vote, as you saw in the recent German election, 
where the AFD uh, Alternative for Deutschland, the far right, I think got about 13%, uh, mainly at the expense of uh, mainstream conservative, the Christian Democrats, who I think only got about 30. So you've got uh, uh, to get taken together, you know, about 45% of the vote being conservatives, but very different types of conservatives. One is a, a pro-globalization party, the mainstream conservatives, and then you've got the far right, which is very much against it. And that's very worrying for the Christian Democrats. They've always managed to, just by changing their rhetoric before elections, like anti-migrant and so forth, to keep those people in uh, the mainstream conservative party. We've had the same phenomenon in Australia with uh, One Nation coming back as well. It's, uh, it's something that Howard always wanted to prevent by just changing his rhetoric at times to having a party outflank them on the right. So uh, I think that the, you might be surprised to hear me say this, the intellectually coherent position is actually the far right. Is there, they're anti-economic globalization and they're anti-people globalization. We don't want foreigners and we want to keep, uh, we want to put up tariffs and we want capitalism for Australians. It, it does make sense, whether, whatever you think of it morally, okay? Uh, the incoherence is the position of the Murdoch press. If you read The Australian regularly, you'll see that they're definitely pro-economic globalisation, but they're increasingly running the line of a kind of Tony Abbott nationalism, it's especially some of its columnists. Uh, and uh, so they're, they're uh, for example, pro-migrants because they need, we need migrants for the economy, but they're very tough on uh, Islam, and on Muslim refugees. Um, so they're promoting, though, the conditions, i.e. the globalization that leads to the economic insecurity of many Australians, that lead to the opposition to their very project. It, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, they don't see it that way, but I think it's internally incoherent. But important to analyze, just for those yeah. reasons, probably. The other question I have is um, really about, you know, what's the opposite of authoritarianism? Because the concept I heard most mentioned uh, was human rights. And it's interesting because I think historians are all too ready to kind of dismiss human rights as an idea and a concept, often because it's regarded as Western or um, inadequate because it doesn't really address economic inequality. But actually, you know, Lucia, you talked about the importance of human rights and you also mentioned the rest. I mean, so is that, is it, is that more important than democracy? I mean, what is it that you think is the opposite of authoritarianism? Yeah, I think today in Egypt uh, the concept of human rights uh, is far more important uh, or, or maybe more articulated than democracy. And there are historical reasons for that. The word democracy in, uh, in the Middle East has been uh, alienated uh, by the war against Iraq. The, the American war against Iraq, which was, uh, which was you know, marketed as a war to bring democracy in the Middle East. You know, the, the, you know we, we have we all grown up with this, no, we're not we, but, you know, uh, our generation has grown up with this idea that, you know, the, the new world order would be put in place and uh, once the Saddam Hussein regimes would have been replaced by uh, a democratic order, you know, a domino effect uh, would have uh, been created across the Arab world. Of course, this didn't work because uh, in Iraq there were already democratic uh, uh, organizations and there was already an underground democratic civil society which 
you know, suffered from, after suffering from 13 years uh, of economic sanctions, uh, suffered from the consequence of the war and suffered from the consequences of the occupation. Uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, the, you know, the spread of Al-Qaeda and then ISIS in Iraq is a long-term result uh, of the poor management uh, of the post-Saddam Hussein regime. Uh, so it's uh, by the American administration. So the, the word democracy is not that it's not uh, understood or it's not part of the political discourse in the Arab world. It has been part of the political discourse in the Arab world for a long time, but it has been uh, alienated uh, by the way international politics was played in the region. And uh, uh, interestingly, the key words of the revolution uh, uh, were, you know, even if the activists were democratic activists and their ideas were democratic, you know, they voted for the elections, they engaged in the parliament, uh, they, they tried to build, uh, you know, a, a, a pluralist system. But they, you know, in the square, they, I, they, read, they didn't use the word democracy. They used the word social justice. They used the word dignity and uh, freedom. And so uh, this is another case, you know, where translating concepts, you know, concepts needs to be situated in, uh, in, in their own concept, which does not mean that they don't want democracy. They really want democracy. Mm, but they, they, they want it in a, a, I would say, in a decolonized world, mm, in a world uh, where you know, space is given uh, to uh, the, the, the indigenous forces who can bring a democratic process, who can lead a democratic process. Today, these forces are either in jail or in exile. So the situation is really bad. So do you want to ask just a few well, I think the, the, one of the paradoxes of democracy is that we vote for less democracy. And that's what we see today. Actually, people, citizens feel so alienated that they vote for less democracy voluntarily. And I think this is a very interesting paradox we have to think because the opposite of uh, authoritarians, the rise of authoritarianism, I believe, is uh, civil society and inclusive democracy, that is to say, which essentially people participate in with their, con consent, uh, with their consent. They include people instead. The main characteristic I think we have, we mentioned that implicitly of this authoritarian discourse is unfortunately sometimes adopted by the left as well, is the otherizing. We otherize, it's us versus them. It's us against the world, this one, you know, that one. I mean, uh, as um, um, Dirk mentioned before, you know, you have Murdoch talking about uh, in Australia, Whereas he's the, the prototype of, of global, uh, if I may say, tycoon, of a globalized tycoon. So I think we have to learn to live with these paradoxes of discourse, of practice, of, um, if I may say, of self-perception as well, because we are paradoxical ourselves as citizens. We feel paradoxical because you buy coffee from uh, Colombia, knowing very well that's a product of colonialist, colonialist exploitation. You buy, we buy our phones and we see this iridium which is exploited from the Africa with uh, the work of um, unpaid workers or the children. So we know all these things and that's the, essentially, I believe, the, the paradox of modern democracies. And we have to understand that um, uh, I believe that we need uh, a civil society which is based on r rational principles of participation. All people participate, irrespective of their religion, of their <coughs> class, of their, uh, 
um, sexual orientation, of the ethnicity, or whatever, they must participate in institutions. So I believe that civil society means about healthy democratic institutions of inclusion, not otherizing. And as you see, the main language of all conservatives is us versus them. There's always enemies. There are always enemies somewhere there to get us. Sometimes, of course, as you know, the enemies are within the walls, and sometimes the, the enemies are themselves who mention that, but you know, you know what happens in this case. But that's, I believe that uh, sometimes politicians uh, speak a legalistic language, or yes or no, but in reality, it's a great gray area of maybe, yes, perhaps, yes and no, and depends of how critical citizens, citizens with critical conscience, uh, as uh, Dirk said before, react to uh, what the power, actually authoritarian power, uh, introduces as policies. Okay, so we still have the problem of identifying creeping authoritarianism. So, uh, Meredith, I think the mic's going around now. We've got loads of questions. We might as well start at the back and work our way towards the front. Okay, just there. Mm. I thank you very much for the interesting talks. Uh, prior to most revolutions in history is radical changes in technology. And right now we're witnesses to incredible leaps in information technology, including social media, blockchain that creates cryptocurrencies and actually competes with central monetary authorities. Given such technologies, I think it's opening up vistas for stronger participatory democracy that challenges the very structures of authoritarianism, not only in politically repressive regimes, but also in neoliberal, neoliberally disguised tyrannies. So I'd like your comments on that. Okay, Thank so you. we should collect a few, Meredith. Get it, there's over there and then, to, oh, actually, why don't we just go there and then we'll go over there and there, okay. Let's collect three and then we'll do another three. Yeah. Cool. Um, thank you for that wonderful panel. Um, I wanted to make a comment and then ask a question. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first was just about the Politico methodology that you were worried about with asking about parenting. So, well, no, it's really interesting. So it's been a really recent development in psycholinguistic and cognitive psychology research, which is that because politicians tend to use a lot of family and parenting metaphors when they discuss politics, psycholinguistics started looking at whether or not your ideas of family structure reflect, were reflected in your politics, and they found a really high correlation. So they found using this parenting question, so the parenting styles question was a better proxy for investigating authoritarian tendencies because you tend to get a high social desirability problem because people aren't gonna say like, yeah, I love authoritarianism, like especially in Western countries. Mm -hmm. um, so that was just a comment on that, so you don't have to worry, it's probably quite sound. <laughs> um, so then my question was, um, recently there started to become a discussion about how the alt-right and the alt-left maybe aren't extremes on a spectrum, but are maybe much closer together in a loop. And I was wondering if you guys could speak to that and also maybe how that aligns with the development of both ends throughout history. Right, good questions. So uh, just someone's been patient over there. In the, the gentleman with the glasses. Yeah, you, you were you were next. I know. Which one? With the glasses there. Yeah. He had his hand up earlier. Yeah. Uh, thank you for a uh, very interesting uh, discussion. Just I want to to think about is 
uh, authoritarianism as an analytical concept is still valid. Uh, Jack, you know, uh, Wolfgang Strick uh, uh, wrote lately about the movement or transition from the nation state to the market state. And as I understand it, authoritarianism really functioned within the structure of the nation state. Could authoritarianism still uh, use as an analytical a framework to understand the market state? Okay, so three questions. You don't have to answer all of them, but anyone who wants to pick up any technologies, alt-right, left-right, and is authoritarianism still well, I might say something about the, yeah. the communication. That was the first question. A really, really important one, one about technology and communication. No doubt we have a communicative abundance uh, now compared to the past. Uh, but certainly YouTube, uh, Facebook and so forth can be very ambivalent. On the one hand, say in the Middle East, and this is something Lucia knows more about than I do, but I have a, a friend and colleague who's working on a project on this Jordanian woman on this very issue, so it's quite current for me. Uh, Facebook and platforms like that have given a space for young people in the Middle East to uh, express views, communicate with each other, network with each other uh, in a non-coercive space. So that's been enormously liberating. On the other hand, some really regressive fundamentalist Islamist preachers are among the most popular people on YouTube where they're applying uh, you know, the very messages which would be inimical to most of these people, uh, on the young people. So it, it's a tool which can be used by all kinds of people in different ways. So I don't think it's necessarily emancipatory. I mean, the fact that it can be, it leads China to block Twitter and these kind of things, you know, the New York Times, uh, as I discovered when I was Shanghai recently. And I think that Putin is trying to block the use of VPNs. But he also uses the web. I mean, he, the Russia uses the yeah. web to... Yeah, they're the biggest trolls. They're all sitting in Macedonia or somewhere like okay. that in villages just reviewing their stuff. Like most things, it can go both ways. It can go both ways. Was, uh, the second point, was that George Lakoff, the philosopher who writes about those things, those yeah. lingo? Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, so he said, you see Berkeley and then Gonzalo, that he's Yeah. Yeah, and then you at the University of Sydney. Yeah. yeah. The other one. No, we don't talk about that. The other one. Uh, yeah. So then we have... Uh, we have uh, uh, a question about whether authoritarianism uh, can be a valid concept when having moved from the nationalist state or the nation state to the market state. I think I was just reading straight this afternoon. I think possibly that very uh, piece in preparing my, my uh, thoughts is a German sociologist called Wolfgang Streck. Uh, his argument is that, as I understood it, he doesn't use the word authoritarianism. He talks about Trumpism, I think. It's sort of a popular conservatism. Uh, is a compensatory uh, form of politics to, um, uh, which appeals to people who feel insecure by the market state. So uh, although he doesn't use the term authoritarianism and he rejects the term bonapartism, which is a term historians like to use from the 19th century, it's a term Marx used referring to Louis Bonaparte who took over French politics in the coup in 1851 and ruled to um, 1871. And I think he was the real Napoleon. Was it his nephew? Yeah. yeah. Glenda's a good 19th century story and knows that. But it was, a fairly, it was an authoritarian regime, anti-democratic, you know, post-parliamentary and so forth. Uh, and that's often used by historians as a label, a Bonapartist regime, 
which is not, not totalitarian, it, it's not opposed by the church or anything like that, um, but it's not stable either. I mean, in Marx's uh, theory of it, it's a regime that can occur when there's an equilibrium of class forces. Uh, the left is disorganized, but so is the ruling class. In a sense, maybe that's what we have today. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a strong man can step in and not be dominated whether by capital or by labor. But it's inherently unstable because markets, this is what Mark, uh, Marx uh, postulated, markets and business just keeps going on. Uh, doesn't matter what the state does and ultimately uh, the capital needs to reproduce itself and then uh, a state will emerge that suits its interests. Um, I mean, this is a very functionalist approach. Now, um, perhaps, perhaps we need a neo um, a Bonapartism. Maybe that's what we've got in America. But may I say, that's very rational what you just said, Dirk. Yeah. I mean, we, indicate, we presume that people act and react rationally. But as you see, it's the irrational realm. Is it Russian or rationalist? Rational. rational. And I believe that everything is irrational in politics. Actually, <laughs> after, the, after the 90s, I have written an essay, I remember, on the, on the Greek socialist experiment in the 80s in Greece, and I call it the irrational in politics. Because essentially, you, have a, 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 you always had the, this utopian project. It was either in the left, and if I may say in the right, that's why the utopianists come together at the end, because they want to create this ideal um, if I may say, society of um, order in both cases. And we have to deal with our, if I may say, we, because we are, this is the problem with the individual today. Marxists never, Marxists never gave an answer to the position of the individual in society. Mm. They can't see human beings as having interior, internal life. Interiority does not exist in this political vocabulary. We are all, all, the, all of us, I'll, fin I'll ask you, sorry, but you know, I mean, we, we are all essentially cogs in a machine, essentially structures. Are we structures or individuals? And it's the same question, I think, that we have, uh, if I may answer your question, that essentially I think the old right and the old left uh, overlap in some, in some uh, idea. Yeah, who all, is the alt-left? I mean, what is this alt-left? It's okay. like two people. So, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Come on. There are more, there are more than two. That's a, that's a different evening. I'm saving yeah, other topics. We're having two. nationalism and we're doing the alt-left. Okay. Now, Latour, do you want to say anything? Yes, I just want to say something on the role of technologies. I think that historically, you know, medium have always played uh, a, a crucial role, huh? in a phase of social and political transitions. You know, it was uh, for the invention of, like that, for the invention of paper, then from, for the invention of the press, and uh, later on, the, you know, how the press migrated, uh, you know, from Europe uh, to other parts of the world, and uh, later on, of course, internet. And in the 90s, there was a Moroccan sociologist, uh, Moroccan feminist sociologist, Fatima Mernissi, who was quite optimistic about the role that internet would have played in the process of democratization of the Arab world. Uh, not only internet, but also satellite televisions. And again, the case you know, of the 1991 war in Iraq was a central case because you know, 
It was uh, the, the first world which was, you know, seen across the Arab world through the satellite televisions and it shocked, literally shocked the um, public opinion in the, Arab world, in the Arab world because it was the first time that, you know, the so-called moderate Arab states were part of a Western coalition attacking an Arab country. So it was a big turmoil in terms of social movements and social activism. But uh, uh, what happens, what we have seen happening is that uh, while, uh, you know, social movements and democratic forces use social media and, uh, you know, internet to afford processes of democratization, uh, the authoritarian state upgrades its uh, uh, forms of control. And sometimes they also use, uh, you know, a, a public discourse on uh, the opening of the um, public sphere, you know, of the internet sphere to reinforce their authoritarian politics. And this was the case of Ben Ali in Tunisia and Assad in Syria. They both opened the space for internet, but uh, they opened it because it served uh, the, you know, their economic projects, uh, not because they wanted the democratization of their states. So uh, uh, social media and uh, internet uh, and media in general always play uh, an ambiguous role in these processes. Okay, so we've got people waiting patiently. We've got three more, maybe more. Should we take a bunch of questions and answer what you want? Because I, I feel everyone needs to have a voice. And you've been very patient. You will get your turn. Nazi stands for National Socialist German Workers' Party. Mussolini was voted Socialist of the Year. North Korea is the Fabian Utopian State, which implies that left-wing and right-wing are the same. Doesn't that imply that the term alt-right and uh, you're a fascist is just baseless smear um, and innuendo based on nothing? Okay, so that picks up the theme we've just been discussing. We can go further in a minute. Um, so we've got... Uh, can we go right front? Because this person's been waiting very patiently. And then we'll do Mr Red Vest and then Mr Black Shirt. And I feel I've only been looking at the left. I'm sorry I said Mr Black Shirt in this context. Oh, um, hello. Okay. Yeah, my name is Gerard Hosier. I um, actually lived uh, in the... Uh, so, oh, no, I was on the um, other side of the Iron Curtain before, during and after its fall. And uh, I saw the effects of uh, sort of being always pressured to form. Um, and uh, after the war, Germany has perhaps now is the most alert to authoritarianism, say with data and, uh, you know, with its history, um, data in particular. My question is about uh, electronic um, authoritarianism run by um, contractors um, with AI bots and facial recognition. Um, right now, it's being introduced by a benign state um, to uh, uh, look after our safety, but could this be the thin edge of the wedge leading to authoritarianism? Okay, thank you. Just behind you, and then the end of the row. Thanks, everyone. This may be a, a naive question, or perhaps even an anti-intellectual one, but I get the sense that uh, authoritarianism is changing slowly and it's devolving into something that I can only call tribalism. So I wonder if you could address for me the difference between, how you see the difference between authoritarianism and tribalism. Okay, so we're back to what is authoritarianism. Is it a useful concept? Yes, yeah. Any of the room? 
Anyone over here before we? Dirk, I'd be interested to hear your comment on Tony Fitzgerald's proposal recently to uh, improve on politics by submitting to both major parties seven points uh, to minimise uh, corruption and, and other undesirable behaviour that we see a lot of over the last 20 years. Uh, could you tell us how it correlates to possibly creeping authoritarianism, uh, natural justice? What's it? Uh, how, how the rejection by both major parties, a total rejection by the Liberal Party, and 14% of the Labor Party um, <clears throat> only commented that it was a good idea. Okay, so. Is that the last question? All right, I just want to have, before anyone answers, I, this is a list of creeping authoritarianism signs, and it was put together by Stephen Walt, a Harvard IR scholar, and um, I've been saving it up. So before you answer, here's my list, see what you think. Oh, it's Walt's list. Systematic efforts to intimidate the media, building an official media network, politicizing the civil service military, or domestic security agencies, using government surveillance against domestic political opponents, using state power to reward corporate backers and punish opponents, stacking the courts, enforcing the law for only one side, rigging the system, fear-mongering, demonising the opposition. I think we've covered some of those tonight, haven't we? Mm. But they also come up in the questions. So any answers to those questions from the panel? Yes, first and question about uh, the National Socialist Workers' Party. Indeed, uh, that's what it was called. And like all political parties, it had internal tensions. On the left wing of the Nazi party was indeed uh, one which had an anti-capitalist rhetoric. Uh, but what you need to remember, sir, is that they were wiped out in the Night of the Long Knives, not the ACDC song, but an historical event in 1934. Um, and you know, who were the first people the Nazis arrested in 1933 and locked up? Trade unionists and communists. Uh, the left was the, was the opposition. If there was a national socialism, it was you know, socialism just for Germans. It was a racist socialism. Okay? So, uh, and the socialist aspect quickly disappeared. There was no nationalization of industry. On the contrary, they used uh, a new trade union style organization to discipline the labor force, drive down wages, and rearm Germany through, uh, through you know, uh, rearm Germany through this discipline, uh, which favored uh, the mass of the big corporations. So this can hardly be called a leftist project. Don't you agree? I know that's about Mussolini. I think I'll let Giorgia say it. Yes, I think, you know, the case of Mussolini is, uh, you know, uh, very much used to, to, to you know, to um, support this thesis, you know, the, of a kind of overlapping between the left wing and the right wing. It is true, Mussolini came from a socialist background, but uh, the, tradi the big tradition of the socialist uh, theories uh, and uh, political activism in Italy was not limited to Mussolini. You know, we... Uh, 
we, we had, you know, the, the majority of political, socialist political activists were, again, jailed, arrested, or, when, or even assassinated on exile. Yeah. So it's, um, the problem is that they won, you know, and so they, in a way, they, they were able to build a narrative. And Mussolini actually built many of his politics uh, on the legacy of the liberal, uh, the so-called uh, liberal age of the post-Unitarian Italy. You know, Mussolini in 1923 opened a suffragist congress uh, of women, uh, uh, promising the suffrage uh, to women. And this was one of the requests uh, of you know, liberal uh, uh, women's activists. And this was in the program of the, the Italian liberal parties before Mussolini mm. took the power. Then, of course, you know, he eliminated suffrage, uh, and mm. also he eliminated the problem. Yeah. But, um, I, I wouldn't, uh, I, you know, I would be careful in uh, overlapping these two traditions because, in fact, they built on uh, different discourses, different, uh, uh, even different literatures. Uh, yeah. and, different and the thing about Mussolini is that although he came from socialist circles during the First World War, exactly. he voted, unlike the Italian Socialist Party, he voted for the war. Exactly. That was the big split on the left. Were you going to support this imperialist war? and in the name of the nation, or oppose it in the name of an international solidarity. And he voted for Italian nationalism, and that's where he left socialism behind. Uh, so once, it's also important to distinguish between fascist rhetoric, which sometimes has anti-capitalist uh, tones, it's true, and how fascists behave in state when they're never anti-capitalist. Okay. So it's important to just not so read it's like, literature. It's like Trump saying he's anti-globalization um, exactly. and then putting Wall Street exactly. in power. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, may I say also something? I have a deep respect for the tradition I try to delineate, first of all, because I believe that represents one of the central, if I may say, traditions that we have con of continuity with the Renaissance world. And as I said, I would like to say before what Dirk said, I think that that totalitarian totalitarian tradition goes back to Plato. It's a Platonic tradition. Uh, politically, it was expressed recently by the Leo Straussians, the Straussians in uh, the American political scene. It's very interesting to see that most of the po American politicians were uh, students of Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago. In 1979, uh, uh, Leo, uh, Leo Wolfovich, wrote this incredible article about the promotion of democracy worldwide, and it was a Leo Strauss <coughs> in action. So I have deep respect, that's why I said we have to study to see what they're talking about, because sometimes I think they overlap, they, things, they say that uh, Mussolini had this, and uh, I would like a word about this, you know, I think totalitarianism comes out of the autonomization of bureaucracy within a, play, within a, a movement. It's bureaucratized corporatism that was the policies of, of, uh, of uh, Mussolini. The same happened in the Soviet model as well. Essentially, we have bureau bureaucratic socialism. It was bureaucracy. It was not the people anymore. It was a bureaucracy that took over. And the bureaucracy created this opaque, uh, uh, totally, uh, if I may say, o o repressive and oppressive system that we have for so long in the Soviet Union. Because I travel in the Soviet Union, I've seen people dying because of this, and I'm really sort of a gun. I was, uh, um, my heart still, I still remember, and uh, I feel with um, uh, pain seeing 
the uh, a noble idea of equality and justice being transformed into the most oppressive regime in human history. So, in fact, what we're left with then is the need to analyse not just ideas, but what actually happens on the ground, which comes back to how we start, where we started. And I have to say, every time I have one of these panels, I think, you know, I can sleep better because I have fantastic colleagues, but I can't really sleep because there's no time. Because in fact, a panel is not long enough. We need to all go back and. But we have to say something about the tribalism. Course. You could do that privately. Yeah. So, and also, we could have. Now, next two weeks' time, we're going to do globalisation, but I'm going to do this again second half next year, and we'll do nationalism, and we'll do tribalism and the nationalism. We might do the alt-left just because... Oh, keep talking. But, yeah. you know, we'll see. Anyway, I think I'll take some votes on that. Thank you for coming tonight. Just hang around and chat to them and give them a hard time, if you like. Enroll in courses at the university. I wish I could, but I also like teaching them. And uh, thank you for being here. Thanks to Meredith Hall, Sydney Ideas. Yeah. Good night. Thank you, Gleda. Thank you for bringing us all together. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.